nerd alert. I'm going to talk about, I'm going to talk about the Lord of the Rings again. So a quick show of hands, just so I know what I'm dealing with. Who here has either seen the movie trilogy of the Lord of the Rings or read the Tolkien books? Yeah, it's about like half-half. So uh, great, and kudos for those of you who actually read the books, as any self-respecting grown-up should do. Read the Lord of the Rings. So the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy, and you, know, really, you don't really have to have seen or read it uh, to, to get this, but the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy basically revolves around the basic premise that this magic ring of immense power ends up in the hands of the most unlikely creature to hold such a powerful thing, which is a hobbit. And that's basically what the whole story revolves around. So you have these rings of power that are magical rings, and one of them is the most powerful one that was created by this really evil bad guy, right? And it's lost for thousands of years, and then it's found, and it ends up in the hands of a hobbit. And the hobbit uh, are basically small English countrymen people. <laughs> they're they're, they're a, a, a race of people. They're small. They live in their corner. What they do is they tile the land, they eat their food, and they stick to their own, and they mind their business. And they're quiet people. They are not people in in power in any sense. They're just mining their gardens, planting their potatoes, and trying to get along with life. And they're tiny of stature. They're not very consequential to the grand political events of Middle Earth, which is this uh, land which Tolkien created. And uh, yeah, they don't show in the history books. They don't occupy positions of power. They stay out of sight as much as they can, and the people in power are quite happy with leaving it that way. Until a ring of power ends up, the ring of power ends up in the hands of a hobbit, and there are a lot of things happen in the, in the Lord of the Rings around this, right? around this basic premise. And of course, as you would expect, it turns out that the traditional power holders of Middle Earth, both good and bad, are mistaken about a whole lot of things. Right? They're mis Most consequentially, they misunderstand the power of the ring and they definitely underestimate the hobbits. And that is, of course, what most people with some degree of power or privilege tend to do. Misuse and understand both the power to do good and the power to do evil and underestimate those who have been traditionally kept at the margins. But some stories, some stories dare to subvert this power game and dare to center those who had been at the margins, either unseen or purposefully kept at the margins. And that's what Tolkien, to some extent, does in The Lord of the Rings. He also, just so that's it, he also consciously or unconsciously also reinforces a whole lot of other prejudices, but that's a whole other conversation that I can have with you at church coffee if you want. Uh, but, but still, right? This is just a, an example to get our wheels, uh, the wheels in our minds and our hearts turning as we go into another story 
Another story from a different storyteller. And the story that we want to go in here comes from John the Gospel. John the Gospel writer, right? John who tells the Gospel. John the storyteller who brings us the story of the Gospel. And it is profoundly more serious, more real, and more consequential than the Lord of the Rings. And the story I want to read with you is from John, of course, as I just said, Gospel according to St. John, chapter 20, and I'm going to read from verse 1 to 18, and it is, as those of you who have been coming to OIC lately might know, it is a resurrection story. We have been talking for some Sundays now about stories of resurrection. Stories that witness, that take place uh, in the context and from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we're coming from Easter in this new season, the season of resurrection. And we've been talking about Christ in the land of the living, which is the name of our series. And this is a story of resurrection. And this is how John, the gospel writer, tells us the story. He says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Then Peter and the other disciples set out and went towards the tomb. The two were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look in and saw the lion and wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the lion and wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the lion and wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you looking for? Supposing him to be the gardener, She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not touch me, because I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. 
such a rich story, such a dense story, so much, so much we could say about it. But we have heard it. We have heard it before, haven't we? The women, early on the Sunday of Passover, go to the grave where Jesus had been buried, go to tend to the dead and to tend to their own grief. And yet, as they come, they are met by life rather than death, by mystery and life rather than death. The women and among them, Mary Magdalene. We've heard the story before, haven't we? This year, this year's Easter Sunday, for those of us who were here just a month ago, we heard this story as the gospel writer Luke tells it. But we could have picked any of the other gospels. In all four gospels, Mary Magdalene is among the first witnesses to the resurrection. And in fact, she is the only one mentioned by name as being there by all four gospel writers. And John again tells the story. And when John tells the story, Mary Magdalene is not just one of the group of the first witnesses of resurrection. Here she is alone, the first to see, speak to, and be spoken to by the risen Jesus Christ. And this this prevalence of Mary Magdalene in the resurrection accounts have earned her the title Apostle to the Apostles. The one called to witness to the witnesses of Jesus Christ that he had risen and that he had risen indeed. But in this first instance of the biblical narratives, Mary Magdalene is not given due credit. She is not believed. We saw that already in Luke's account. Luke, who clearly tells us that the other disciples thought that the women's talk about the resurrected Jesus Christ were idle tales, as the NRSV translation puts it, or nonsense, as the NIV translation puts it. And we might be upset with the disciples for not believing. We who read the story from the outside. We who witnessed to Mary witnessing the resurrected Christ. We might be upset with the disciples for not believing, but what is perhaps most surprising in this, is, this account is not that the disciples don't believe, but that Mary is the first witness and that John so unashamedly centers her witness in the resurrection, of count, uh, in the resurrection account. That is surprising. Now, why is that surprising and why is that unusual? Well, because this is not a story or a text from today, right? This is an ancient text from 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, in Israel, in the context and a culture in which women had no word in court, in which women's testimony was by law unreliable and unaccounted for. Right? In, in Jewish law, if you had a, a, a case, a woman's word was basically meant nothing, nothing. 
So why, when you're trying to tell a story, choose a woman as your main witness? Women were legally unreliable and therefore culturally untrusted. And then we have in these stories, right, the, the incredulity of the disciples themselves. And it's interesting, I think, that this text is a bit dubious in regard to John and Peter. It says that Mary went to the tomb, didn't dare to go in, called the disciples, John and Peter run there. John is a bit like, I don't know if I can get and deal with this. He sees the cloth. Peter goes in. He sees the cloth. He sees the, the head cloth rolled to its side, and then he believes. But what does he believe in exactly? The text doesn't really tell us. And very often this has been understood as, well, Peter believed in the resurrection. Or, and John actually is the one who they say believed, in the re- believed then. Well, he believed in the resurrected because he saw this cloth thing separated, right? And he thought, well, this can't be really grave robbers, which was the first conclusion that Mary came to, which is a very logical conclusion because grave robbery was a real thing at the time. That's why they put a stone in front of the tomb. It's a logical conclusion. And very often, the interpretation has been that one. It might be. It might be that John puts in this detail to sort of save face a bit for Peter and John because he will also be talking about Peter being reinstated as we talked about last week. But the text doesn't say that. And in fact, the text leaves it a bit dubious because it says, for as, they, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, and then they just go home. And if we take this together with Luke's account, and John was written after Luke, Luke tells us again that they did not believe. They said it was an idle tale. Nonsense. So what did they believe? Maybe what they believed, and I I think this is the most logical conclusion at this point, which is not to say that they weren't left wondering, but I think they believed Mary's report that the body was missing. And we can't sort of avoid, if we consider again Luke's account, we can't avoid a sense that Mary isn't believed unless these men in charge see the evidence for themselves. What are you talking about? Jesus isn't there. He has to be there. We got to go and check. And also, Mary isn't just any woman. There's that, right? I talked about how women were, women were unreliable, considered unreliable, and whose witness had no legal weight. Well, Mary wasn't just a woman. We don't know much about Mary Magdalene. And throughout history, you know, theologians have merged her with other Marys that show up in other stories. But the thing that we do sort of know is she's referenced as a woman who had been relieved of seven, seven demons by Jesus. And exactly what that means is up for different interpretations. It could be a form of spiritual, uh, a spiritual oppression that she was undergoing. It could also be a form of, of illness or of mental illness, considering how these things were conflated in Jewish culture at the time. Whatever it is, she was a woman recognized publicly as being through deep trouble of some sort. So she was on the margin of the margin. And this is the woman, this is the woman who is here 
being first-hand account to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's interesting that whatever the disciples believed, and we, again, we don't, the text doesn't tell us, it leaves us a bit wondering, but whatever the disciples believed when seeing the linen in the empty tomb, what we do know, for, or what the story does tell us, is that they leave Mary behind with her sorrow. Have you ever noticed that? Mary is in despair that the body of her Lord disappeared. She calls for help. They come in, they check, they say, yeah, the body disappeared, and they leave. But Mary stays. Stays with her pain, stays with the struggle. And Mary, left behind Mary, is the first witness. The first witness to the resurrected Jesus Christ. But Mary isn't just the, only, the first witness. She's not just a vessel for a story. Right? There's more going on here. Mary doesn't only see, which is what we often think about when we think about a witness. Mary doesn't only see. Mary is seen. It's interesting that in this narrative of John, while in Luke, I think, I might be mixing the, the synoptics here, but Luke, I think, the angels address the women and tell them, of the, announce the resurrection. Here, the angels do not announce the resurrection. What they do is they acknowledge Mary's pain. They talk to her. They do what the disciples didn't do. Mary, why are you weeping? Who are you looking for? What's going on, Mary? And then Jesus does the same thing. Before she even recognizes him, Mary sees her, sees her in her pain, sees her in her abandonment, sees her in her struggle, and says, Mary, what are you looking for? Why are you crying? What's going on? Or he doesn't say Mary yet, because that's when she recognizes him, right? When he says her name. While the men don't acknowledge Mary's pain, God does. First through the angelic beings and then in Jesus himself. So Mary is not only the first to see, but she is seen. She is a person in her own right in this story. And also Mary is the first disciple of the resurrected. And I wanted to spend some time with this because this is so important. And this is the genius of John. John's narrative and how he builds up the gospel and the kind of details that sometimes just slip through because we're not paying enough attention. John always plays with the language. And when, when Jesus questions, a question to Mary, right, when he talks to her and he says, where am I here? Yes. Whom are you looking for? Whom are you looking for? The language there reckons all the way to the beginning of the gospel of John. And in John 1, uh, verse 38, or yes, verse 38, you have J Jesus talking to the first disciples, and they're following him. They follow him, and Jesus turning around saw them and asked, what do you want? What are you looking for? What do you want? And they said, Rabbi, Rabboni, it's the same word, teacher. Rabbi was a teacher 
Rabboni was the word teacher with the change in it for endearment, something like my dear teacher, my beloved teacher. You see how that's the same thing? What are you looking for? And they turn and say, Rabbi, which is a way of saying, I want to hear from you, teacher, right? You, you are my teacher. So Jesus, the way, the way John puts that question, harks immediately to the beginning when he's calling his first disciples. And Jesus calling Mary by name and her being recognized through that action brings us back to the parable of the good shepherd, which is one of the central pieces, right, in John's gospel when he's writing with all of these. We talked about this here as well with these I am announcements. And that parable comes with Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. The shepherd tends to his sheep. The sheep know him by name. They know me when I call them by name. And here, upon hearing her name, Mary recognizes Jesus. Again, there is a continuity with the story, but there is a newness to it. Mary is one of the sheep. And here, John fully includes Mary as a disciple. And this is interesting, right? If the incarnate Jesus had to some extent followed some of the patterns of the day, a rabbi would go around and gather to himself disciples. And whatever, how Jesus expressed this is a good question, but the gospel writers named the male disciples, right? Because they're the ones who were the, the, the learners of the rabbis. But the resurrected Jesus Christ, or John speaking of the resurrected, centers Mary Magdalene as the first disciple of the resurrected Jesus Christ. And then again, we have Mary calling Jesus Rabboni, my dear teacher. And finally, what does Jesus do? He sends her. Before he sends the disciples, right? We all talk a lot about Matthew 28, go. But here he sends Mary, go and tell them. Go and let them know, I am risen. Mary is, in this text of the Gospel of John, the, the prototype of the call to follow Jesus in the new creation. And again, John, is, John is, is masterful in his use of language, right? John does a little detail. He places the beginning of the story while it's still dark. Why does he say that? There's a point, he makes a point out of saying, she leaves while it is still dark. Early on the first day of the week while it was still dark. The other gospel accounts don't include this. Well, John has a purposeful language a purposeful use of this language of dark and light throughout the gospel. And when he talks about this movement from dark into light, he's talking about the movement of Christ into the world, and he's talking about the movement of creation. And again, John is always plugging back to how he opened the gospel. And how does John introduce Christ into the world? He says, the light came into the world. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The light came into the darkness, came to his own. His own did not recognize him, but to those who recognized him, he gave them. He goes into that, the light of the world. And that language, again, harkens back to the language of creation. A new creation, as Paul puts it.
prototype of the call to follow Jesus in the new creation. Isn't that amazing? John brings all of this back, and it's almost like he's doing a reboot of the, of the calling, of the creation, of all of that. But Mary is at the center. And the others will come too. You know, they're going to be included. But he starts with Mary, Mary Magdalene. Mary, the woman who had no voice in court, who's on the sides of the stories. Mary Magdalene of the seven demons. Mary, who not even the disciples give credit for. Christ sees her, God sees her, God sends her, and she is the first disciple of the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean for those of us who want to follow the resurrected Jesus Christ? Because this isn't just about Mary, is it? It isn't just about Mary. What does this mean for those of us who want to follow the resurrected Jesus Christ? For those of us who want to seek the living Christ in the land of the living? Well, it means that we are seen and we are called whomever we might be. Mary is, in the context of first century Judaism and Israel, she is an outcast per definition, right? And she's the one that John sent her. Both because of her story and giving honor and worth to her story, but also because that tells us something about the whole dynamic of what's going on in this new creation and this new calling. And, if, and in that context... You can say, well, if Mary is in, I'm in. You are seen and called whomever you might be. And I don't know where, like our, our places in this are very different. In different contexts we are in. There's still a lot to be said and learned and done regarding hearing the voices of women. There's a lot of other voices. There is a lot to be heard and done about. Children. People who are not in... People who have other sorts of challenges of whatever sort, you know? People who are in different places of the spectrum of cognitive abilities, of bodily presence and expression and limitations, or the poor, the uneducated, or what we keep on doing with races, what we do with gender and whatnot. Whomever we might be, wherever we stand in this, If the social discourse is you are not trustworthy, you cannot belong to this story, your voice is not welcome. That's not the story of this gospel. That's not the story of Christ here. Christ sees Mary, he talks to her, and she is the first witness. 
That is a powerful thing that Jesus is doing and that John is doing with the gospel. John is, he could have, he himself says, there were so many other stories to tell, but I chose these ones so that you might believe. And that's the good news. It means we can believe and be part, even if we have been told or felt that we could not, because you were an immigrant, because you were a woman, because you had the wrong tone of color in your skin. It means whomever we are, whomever we might be, we are seen and we are called by the living Christ to be witnesses to his grace, to his death, to his resurrection, to the power of the gospel. It means also that we should beware of dismissing the calling and the witness of others. This is not exclusive to the gospel of John, but it keeps on getting denser and richer, right? The psalm already sang about the witness in the lips of the infants and the children. The children screaming in the streets of Jerusalem as Jesus walks in, Hosanna to the King of David, to the annoyance of the leaders. Why don't you make the kids shut down? Well, they're speaking the truth. We should listen to them, not shut them down. We should beware of dismissing the calling and the witness of others. And finally, I think it means that we, like John the Gospel writer, we might in fact have to go the extra mile and work on shedding light on how Jesus includes those who had formerly been excluded. John could have told the story differently. And in first century Judaism, John was taking a big risk by putting Mary at the center of this story. But he did it. I can only imagine why. I can hope that he was transformed by the gospel. I can hope that he was transformed by having lived and shared ministry with these women. Maybe the witness of the risen Christ changed him. This is a a daily question for ourselves and for those we meet. And it's it's home, it's here, right? We we come to OIC, we come to an international congregation with people with many different traditions of faith. Maybe we grew up or have been around contexts that have told us that if you're not within this one, you're out, right? And we meet people with different cultural backgrounds, different faces. And we're challenged to say God sees them and God sees me and we have to see each other and love each other. It gets real. Who around us, who that we meet is is someone that has been outered, marginalized, And suddenly, do we dare to believe that they can be at the center of the gospel and of God's grace today? And can I, do we dare to believe that I can, that you can, that we can? 
that from our brokenness, whether self-imposed or imposed by others, God sees us and meets us. What do we do with, what kind of prophetic voice can we bring into the world by daring to love each other and believe that the gospel is for all of us? And how do we bear this forth? The resurrected Jesus Christ brings in a story, right? Brings us into a story where we can be seen, where our voices can be heard, and where we are called to follow. And it's not always easy, is it? Mary isn't believed. She struggles with it. The disciples struggle with it. John and Peter, eventually they believe, but they're still hiding in the upper room because they don't know how the Jewish authorities are going to deal with them. It's like steps, right? It's everyday steps. But there's an insistence in the gospel narrative, and I believe in the voice of the Spirit for us today, that whomever we might be, Christ sees us. God sees us and wants to call us by name. And if we listen to that voice and believe that it speaks to all the others, all the other names, that is gospel, that is good news. Then we are putting ourselves at the feet of a living Christ moving around in the land of the living. And then we can witness. And that's what Mary is called to do. Don't hold me, Mary. <laughs> Tell it. Tell it. Mary. Mary Magdalene. Jesus calls her. Rabboni, my dear teacher. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you into the days of darkness, doubt, and fear and the days of joy that he may bring you of his peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve each other, serve the world, serve the Lord joyfully. Amen. Amen.